dishes. Right? We exaggerate. And what happens to the other party? They get angry because that is not the truth. The third way we do this is inflation. This is where I can be very much guilty of. That was the best dinner ever. Oh my gosh, you got to check that out. Like, and then the next week I'll be like, no, no, that was the best dinner ever. Best restaurant, best whatever it is. We, we, we blow it up and we inflate the truth. And why is that problematic? Because when I keep saying that was the best, that was the best, oh, this is the best, you lose authenticity. What is the best? And the fourth is business lies. You know, some examples of this would be don't say publicly we're for quality, but privately you make unreasonable demands on all your employees. Don't say everything is fine when all your employees know that things aren't fine. Don't put in a big number of orders right before the end of the quarter, even though you know they'll all be canceled, but it will look good in your figures and numbers. And why do we do this? I think it's because we love making bold, symbolic statements. Because that makes us look good. It protects our image. And especially for me, who's such a people person, and I want to please everybody here, there's been things that I'll say, like, I'll be in conversation with some of you, and you'll bring up some person's name, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Because I don't want to f- look like an idiot. I don't want to look like a fool. But in that way, we want to protect our self-image. We want to look good. Or other ways, we want to manipulate the situation. Because in so doing, we get what we want. A great example just this week. I mean, there's so many examples from this week as I prepared. But I give my kids allowance every Friday, or it might be Saturday or Sunday. Like, they have no clue anymore. That's how many times I've broken my word. But yesterday, they're like, you owe us allowance. I'm like, I do, but I don't have the cash. And it's a bunch of dollar bills, and I haven't been to the bank. And they're like, oh my gosh, you owe us for the last three weeks. And I'm like, I know, I know, I promise. I promise next week, I'll give you your three weeks of allowance. And they're like, no, you won't. You always say you promise. But again, it's that sense of breaking my promise. And making these oaths to cover our own failure to keep our word. And so oaths, what that does, it just protects us. And we say whatever we want because it makes us look good. It protects us and we could manipulate situations. One person said this, a professor and scholar, A.M. Hunter. He said, oaths arise because men are so often liars. The same is true of all forms of exaggeration, hyperbole, and the use of superlatives. We are not content to say we had an enjoyable time. We have to describe it as fantastic, or fabulous, or even fantabulous, or some other invention. But the more we resort to such expressions, the more we devalue human language and human promises. Christians should say what they mean and mean what they say. Our unadorned words should be enough, yes or no. And when a monosyllable will do, why waste our breath by adding to it? I love that. But too often, because we want to hide our own failures, 
our own brokenness, our, our own understanding that we do struggle keeping our word. We cover that up with oaths. I think here is where marriage is such a good example of that. As Jesus addresses this, these just short two verses of divorce, you actually have to go to Matthew 19. Because there you get much more of a, a full, full dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus and his disciples. But what Jesus is addressing here is we need to understand the context. Jesus is addressing a culture where divorce was very persistent. Basically, it was no-fault divorce. You could divorce, the husband could divorce a wife for any reason. They didn't like the way she ate. They didn't like her without makeup on. You know, they didn't, they didn't like that she didn't cook well. It could have been for any reason. And they would give this certificate and write it and say, there you go. We are no longer. And so there were, it was the exception to have long sustaining marriages and much more, uh, much more commonplace to see no fault divorce where divorce was happening always because they took advantage of the situation. And so here what Jesus is saying is that rather than doing what the culture says, what does it look like to be able to keep our commitments, the vows that we have made in our marriage, till death do us part forever? But in our day and culture, we, make, we find loopholes, don't we? We were too young and naive. We didn't know what we were getting into. We grew apart over these past seven, ten years. We're just not good for each other. We found out we're just incompatible. And it's better that we just get divorced. I'm just unhappy. Or we fell out of love. And our culture says that these are sufficient grounds for divorce. I looked at the vows that I took as a husband to my wife, Hannah. And I just read them again. And I realized, though I might not be in this camp of, well, I'm finding loopholes to get divorced... Even in my own marriage, I am still finding ways to find loopholes to get out of different things. I mean, here's the vows. I take you to be my wife and I promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. But much too often, what do we do in our own marriages? Though maybe we say divorce is out of the question. We say, if you're not trying, I'm not going to try. You're not providing physical intimacy, so I'll go to the computer. You don't respect me, I'm not going to respect you. You don't pursue me, so I'm going to go pursue some other avenues of golf or work or whatever it is. You see... Even in our own marriages, we find loopholes that we might not get divorced. But what Jesus is calling us to is that we would, that there is no escape clauses, no loopholes. This is what Jesus is demanding from this new community in his kingdom of God. John Stott, in his commentary on this, beautifully, as we think back at the Beatitudes, right? He says, for he that is meek, and a peacemaker, and poor in spirit, and merciful, 
How shall he cast out his wife? He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? You see, it goes back to the beginning with the Beatitudes. Are we poor in spirit? Are we meek? Are we peacemakers? As we think about who God has called us to be, what does that look like to keep our word in marriage, in our friendships, with our children, with our families, with our coworkers, with your bosses? This is what God calls us to. Jesus calls us to develop a reputation so committed to integrity and truth, you never have to preface anything with an oath. Or a statement that says, this is really true. Because your lifestyle, your testimony is such that whatever you say is true. Now, what would that look like? Wouldn't that be countercultural to our culture now? It would be a breath of fresh air. And that is what God calls us to. And that leads us to the second point. This call for integrity. Now, what you have to understand here also with this culture is that when they took these oaths, typically and normally what you would do is you would say, I swear to God. But they couldn't. Why? Because Yahweh's name was forbidden to say publicly or verbally out loud. And so what they would do, which was a good idea, was that because they couldn't swear on Yahweh, They would swear on things. And that's what brought us back to what I read earlier. They would swear on the altar. They would swear on the temple. They would swear on the gold. They would swear on the gifts. And what you would find is that they began to swear on so many objects and things that they began to think that God wasn't a part of these things naturally, right? So it was just an altar. It was just a temple. It was just a hair on my head. And so they began to think that there's levels and shades of levels of closeness with God. But what God, what Jesus is reminding the disciples is that no, God is in everything. God isn't only in the temple and in your, and your hair and whatnot, but he's also present in your words. So you can't just going or go around saying you swear on these things to provide loopholes for you. And think that God isn't present and compartmentalize these things. But rather, God is present everywhere. Including the words that you say. And so here, what Jesus tries to remind them of is that there is no place for half-truths. And I think we do the same thing, don't we? We carve out different places of where we can tell half-truths. And the places where we have to tell the whole truth. For some of us, it might be, well, to the boss... And to my wife, I always have to tell the truth. But to my pastor, (laughs) to my friends, I don't need to tell the whole truth. I mean, I've even gotten that. You know, I I meet with you all, and sometimes I'll be like, do you really want me to be honest? I'm like, yeah, I want you to be honest. You know, but we find these places where we say, well, in essence, God is not present here. So I could just tell little lies. I could exaggerate. I could spin. But in other places, well, no, I have to tell the whole truth. And we find ourselves in this place where we compartmentalize where we want to tell the truth and where we can't. 
And what Jesus reminds us is God's alive and present to witness every single word that you utter. Every promise you make. Whether it's in your job, in your relationships, in your marriages. And this is what marriage does. Marriage is this lifelong commitment. There is no compartmentalizing. As Jesus talks to his disciples and the Pharisees in Matthew 19... Jesus doesn't just talk about why marriage is important and why it's this long, long commitment. He actually goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Creation. And he says that that's where two will become one flesh. This is about uniting identities and lives. You're giving yourself up completely to the other. There's no compartmentalizing in your marriage. And that's impossible to do if there are exit routes or if you're not fully on board, you are putting your entire life and your happiness in the other person. But what's interesting here is Jesus does give certain outs for divorce. And that's what we read here. When one partner continues to show over and over and over again their hard-heartedness of them breaking the covenant and having no intention of keeping the covenant of marriage, Jesus says there are outs. That sexual immorality includes adultery. But as you look at the scope of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about desertion. You can even go back to Exodus 21 when Moses gives a law. He talks about neglect and harm and violence to another. You see, when the covenant of marriage is broken, divorce is permitted. But here's the thing. We don't approach this text to ask, when is divorce okay? That's what these Pharisees kept doing. They said, well, where is that line? Where can I get divorced? Where can I get divorced? What situations may allow me to get divorced? But rather what Jesus is trying to point them to is the beauty of marriage. And how can I continue to sustain this lifelong commitment? We should think about staying together to seek what the Beatitudes talk about, about being peacemakers, being meek, being forgiving, being humble, being poor in spirit, about not retaliating, but forgiveness. It's about staying together. It's not about trying to get out of the marriage. And every time our leadership, when we have encountered these times and they do arise, we're not saying, okay, here is your out. We always begin by reminding them of their vows and what will it take to see, not just to bear and grin it, but to see your marriage one year from now, five years from now, flourishing in a beautiful place. Because that's what God calls us to. And that's what he promises. <coughs> so as we look at this, this is hard. I'm telling you, for me this week, there are so many countless ways I made oaths. I spin things. I told white lies. <coughs> we look at our marriages and how hard and difficult they are. Where's the hope? And that brings us to the last point here, the hope for integrity. Here's our hope. We can keep our word 
because Jesus kept his. We can keep our word because Jesus kept his. You look throughout all of scripture and God makes promises to his people. Genesis 3. He says, I will crush the serpent's head. After Adam and Eve have sinned, he promises to his people that Satan will be no more and victory will be accomplished. Genesis 9. God makes a promise to Noah that he will never destroy the earth ever again. Genesis 12 to Abraham, he promises that I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to all the other nations, to all the generation upon generation. 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise that this king, there will be a king that will reign and endure forever. Jeremiah 31, this new covenant that God will write his law upon our hearts. And we look at Christ who comes into this world and in the midst of the brokenness of us lying, of not being able to keep our commitments, of seeing our marriages in hard, broken places, Jesus comes into that place and when he's faced with the reality that for him to keep his word, that it would cost him his life, he still goes to the cross and keeps his word. You see, to be a Christian is to take him at his word and that he will be faithful to us. Do you know what this is? Do you know why we have it here every single week, every Sunday we get together? This is the baptismal bowl. And what other beautiful picture God has given us that he keeps his word right here. That we are his. And he is mine. That he will always keep his promise when he sees us with being that water having been poured over us. He must keep his promise and he is faithful to those who are part of the covenant. And this is what it is. Baptism is this beautiful picture of discipleship. He marks us and gives us this promise of union to Christ and forgiveness. That's why we always are called to look back at our baptism. For you kids, some of you were baptized when you were little babies. Tell your parents, tell the adults in this church, tell me about my baptism. Remind me of God's promise. It is a beautiful picture of how God has kept his promise to us. We have a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. And the Christian life is a life of hope and a promise. It's not a hope in our works or our performance. You see, it's a life of hope and a promise. And that can be true also of our marriages as well. It's much more of a promise than a contract. Even if you betray me, I'll pursue you with grace and fidelity. Even if you betray me, I'll pursue reconciliation with you. That's what God has designed in marriage for us to be. And I know that when the marriage is unhappy, it is hard. Hard to be in a place where marriage is broken. And there's unforgiveness. And there's so much brokenness and arguments. And it can also be in friendships. At school. Or your co-workers and your workplace. 
But here's where we have to see it cost Christ his entire life. Knowing that keeping his word meant death, he still kept it for you and for me. And so as we keep God's word and we keep our promise, through the difficulty that it might be, and though it might seem unhappy, God promises through his death and resurrection that there actually will be life and joy and happiness. See, God enters into our struggling marriages, our struggling singleness, our struggling friendships, our struggling workplaces. And he says, as I have kept my word, you can keep yours as well. I think the best example of this we find in scripture, in the person of Peter. Think about Peter, this disciple. He was the most bold brash, unwise person who said anything flippantly, right? Think about what he said. When Jesus said, I'm going to be killed, he said, never, never will you be killed. When Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet, Jesus said, or Peter said, never, never will you wash my feet. When Jesus said, you're all going to abandon me, Peter said, never, never will I ever abandon you. I'll die before I ever abandon you. But what does Peter do? He abandons him. He denies him. He even brings curses upon himself. He abused language. He made bold statements and never followed through. But what was Jesus' response to Peter? I'll make you a fisher of men. Upon you I will build my church. Peter, I prayed for you. Now go strengthen your brothers. Peter, Feed my sheep. And in that, what does Jesus do? He forgives him. He forgives him. This is who Jesus is to Peter. And this is who he is to us. We will break our word. We will say oaths that we should not say. We will break commitments. But what we hear, what we see here, is that in the midst of our brokenness and our failures, we can get back up because Christ forgives us and we can continue to recommit and let our yes be yes and our no be no. Earlier on in our worship, you heard the confession of sin. And I want to remind you of this. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Crossroads, he is faithful to faithless people like you and me in our marriages, in our singleness, in our words, in our commitments. Let's look to him this morning and every day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for Jesus who kept his word as costly as it was, as painful as it was. He kept it for us. So, Lord, I pray that we would find hope not in ourselves. Lord, you know our hearts. But, Lord, we can have hope because Christ kept his. You have kept yours. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the enduring hope that, Lord, even when we are faithless, you are faithful and that will give us the hope and the strength to be faithful as well. Lord, may you do that 
not just in this day, but every day. And may that happen even as we come to the table this morning, that you will strengthen us and feed us at the table we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship, we have the opportunity to to come to the table where we are reminded that Christ kept his word, every bit of it. He let his yes be yes and his no be no. And he went to the cross for you and for me. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would be strengthened here. We would find hope. We would find grace here at the table. So as we go back into our marriages, into our friendships, back to our schools, our families, our workplaces, that this would sustain us this morning and this week as the Lord calls us to keep our word, to keep our commitments. Let's pray for that now as we ask the Holy Spirit to tend to these elements. Our Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would do that. We ask that you would use the bread and the cup to feed us, to nourish us, to remind us of your faithfulness so that we might be able to go out to wherever you have called us. Though it might be hard, though it might be such a struggle to keep our word and our commitments, may this strengthen us and sustain us to do so because of what you have done on the cross. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The night that our Lord was betrayed after giving thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup and after giving thanks, he poured, poured it and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. For as long as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he returns. Brothers and sisters, come to the table and eat. For some of you that might not be followers of Jesus yet, don't you want to keep your word? Don't you want to be so countercultural where you understand that it is a breath of fresh air for someone to keep their word all the time? Jesus did that for you. And so as you've listened to the word this morning, as you continue to meditate on it, do so. But let these elements pass by you. There's no shame in doing that. I don't want to ask you to do something that you cannot do yet. Um, but we want you to continue to come back. We're glad you do. Uh, But let these elements pass by you. But for the rest of us, let's be strengthened by Christ and his commitment to us that is pictured here at the table. If you can't have bread or if you need a gluten-free option, uh, let the ushers know. And if you can't have wine, there's a grape juice on the outer ring of each of these plates that are passed. Hold both and we'll take it together, signifying our unity in the body of Christ. Uh, We'll sing this song together as we pass the elements.